Hi everyone, my name is Dylan Chakla and I'm a partner in the FASCIN Toronto Insolvency and Restructuring Group. I'm also a board member of TMA Toronto. This is the second installment in our Craziest File podcast series. Aubrey Kaufman is a senior partner in the FASCIN and Restructuring Group in Toronto and also an adjunct professor teaching the insolvency course at Osgoode. Aubrey's here today to share a story with us about a crazy file that he worked on. It involves fake gold, fraud, and a smoking gun revelation during an examination. With that by way of intro, I turn it over to Aubrey. Thanks, Dylan. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. Um, I've been practicing for over 40 years, and as you can imagine, in that time span, I've seen a lot of craziness. But the file that I want to talk to you about uh, doesn't have anything to do with sex, drugs, or rock and roll, but has a great deal to do with dishonesty and fraud. And just as a general comment, in my practice, my experience is that, you know, people generally aren't deliberately dishonest in, in their dealings. I think a lot of executives get cognitive dissonance and they start to see things that happened in the past the way they want to see them. But I don't think most executives are deliberately lying. Sometimes you'll get a debtor caught in a pinch that does something stupid uh, impulsively, but you rarely see a thought out, multi-person, multi-year, pure deliberate fraud. But in the case I'm gonna tell you about, that's exactly what happened. The case took place uh, in or around uh, 2010. It's about uh, uh, 12 uh, years ago. And it involved the receivership of a debtor company called Royal Chain Canada. And I acted for Laurentian Bank, which was the lender to Royal Chain, and I subsequently acted for Farber uh, as receiver. There are a whole bunch of other parties that were involved, Export Development Bank. Um, there were uh, parallel proceedings with the sister company, but I'm just gonna keep it simple and just stick with um, uh, Royal Chain. So Royal Chain started its business in, in 1989 and was a legitimate uh, business making, obviously, Royal Chains. And I am told that at some point in time, it was the largest uh, uh, gold chain manufacturing business in Canada. Uh, Laurentian Bank was approached in something like 2007 um, after Royal Chains uh, existing lenders uh, didn't want to continue in a relationship uh, with them. That was obviously a warning sign for Laurentian Bank, but they did their due diligence and they, they decided that they would bank um, the business. And they started their, their banking um, relationship in about 2007. So they provided an $18 million or so operating line of credit from about 2007 unt until the receivership in August of 2010, so not a very uh, long banking period. And as is typical in these type of uh, loans, um, the bank controlled uh, the amount that it was going to lend because it was a revolver uh, by by three directions. Uh, uh, the first, it, it got monthly margining statements from the debtor company uh, attested to by the executives, which set out the level of inventory and accounts receivable. And as is typical with these loans, the bank would then lend to a percentage 
of those amounts with certain reserves. Uh, the next uh, protection was the Bangkok quarterly financial statements from the debtor setting out uh, you know, the, 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 the financial results for that quarter. And its last protection was an annual audited financial statement with respect to the business, which was given by a mid-market uh, accounting firm. Everything seemed to be going smoothly until one day out of the blue in August 2010, the banker gets a call from, uh, from his, his client saying, hey, guess what? We can't make inventory next week. Um, we suggest you put in a receiver. This is out of the blue. Just to put it in context a little bit, the previous monthly margining certificate, so the margining certificate for the period ended May 31, 2010, said that the business had $13 million of accounts receivable and $20 million of uh, various types of gold inventory. So if you'd looked at, at that margining statement, you'd say that the, the business was you know, function, certainly functioning at, at a material level uh, immediately before that phone call uh, was made. So what could have happened in a month's time, Aubrey? Well, that's the question we had, and we thought that the, the obvious question is, the obvious answer is that somebody stole all that inventory. So we thought. Uh, and I should just say the inventory was a bit unique. The inventory consisted of um, sometimes pure gold bars from a smelter. So these would be little gold bars with a stamp of a smelter saying, you know, 10 karat gold, 20, 10, 12 karat gold, 18 karat gold. But they always had very few of those. Um, then there were scrap gold metal bars that they would melt down themselves. So if a customer returned gold chain, or indeed sometimes they would buy gold, they would internally melt them into these ugly looking uh, uh, gold bars, which they would then send to a smelter at some point that would return to them pure gold that they could use uh, in their manufacturing process. So a good part of their inventory was made up of these uh, scrap gold bars. The, remain, the main part of their inventory were these big plastic spools of gold chain and they would have different styles on them and different quality gold. So you'd walk into the main safe and you'd see a hundred large spools of chain and there'd be marked on them style XYZ 12 karat gold. Um, when we went in, uh, we got the receiver appointed the next day, Farber appointed the next day and Farber uh, went in. When Farber went in, there were no, no pure gold bars. There, we couldn't, they couldn't find any scrap gold bars, but they found five bins of a gold-colored alloy. And there were no spools of chain at all, but there were, oddly, spools of copper wire wrapped. And then over the wrapping of copper wire, would be one layer of tape, leaving about half an inch left in the spool. So we, we were now totally confused. Um, I went to court and I got an order in the receivership, basically given, giving the receiver the power to examine anybody it wanted, similar to a 163 examination under the BIA. 
And as uh, as I was said, Dylan, in answer to your question, we really thought that in the week weeks before the call was made to send in the receiver, that the executive simply stole whatever gold bars there were. That was the most obvious theory of the case. But I had one good idea. Once I got that that order, I didn't start by examining the executives. I ser- I got orders examining the plant floor people, and I started off um, with the assistant plant manager, Carlos, who just to make the, the drama higher, was dying of cancer and came to the examination, not with a lawyer, but with his wife. And he was he, he was not in a good place in, in his life. His business had terminated. He was a very ill person. And he was now being called into a very scary uh, examination. So, of course, I tried to put on my scariest face and my scariest demeanor. Um, and I really went after him in terms of when was the gold last there? When did it go away? And I'm hammering him as much as I can until at one point he looks at me. His bottom lip starts to quiver and he looks at me and says, no, you don't understand. The gold hasn't been there. There is no gold. It hasn't been there for years. And, and I just like That's stopped. That's quite the admission. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I, I'm remembering it now. I, I think when I got that, I almost stopped examining him because I was so, so stunned. But. <laughs> Then, then I, I, so I got that central admission, and then I started to examine the people on the floor, the uh, accounts receivable clerk and other workers on the floor. Um, and what emerged is, is the following story. This really was uh, a good business at a point. At some point, it started to slack off. and. Before we took over, before Laurentian Bank took over, in order to pad its inventory, uh, it found a gold alloy that was very heavy uh, and very gold colored. And they started to replace or supplement the gold bars in their safe. Um, They had legitimate scrap gold bars, but they started to have one or two fake gold bars, which when the auditors would come, would would sort of make up their numbers so that they could draw down on their margin and have sufficient to to run their business. As the years went on, there was more and more corrosion until at the time that the music stopped, virtually all of the gold bars were fake. And but but then they had a problem because they also needed gold chain. And that's the origin of those spools with copper wire. Copper is a very heavy metal, not as heavy as gold, but pretty metal, but but pretty heavy. And so what they would do is they would take a spool, use copper wire, except for the last inch or so. And the last inch only would be real gold by by style and by quality of 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 gold. so at that at that point, oh, and what we then found out in examinations is not only 
<laughs> and this is the incredible part. They were so sophisticated. Not, not only was the gold uh, uh, fake and the and the um, and the bar fake, they faked their receivable numbers to make it, the business look at the level of the inventory they kept. The way they did that is they issued fake invoices to friendly companies, and at the end of the audit period, they would issue credit notes to those friendly parties. Um, we determined that we'd get no recovery from the debtor. We sued the auditors basically for, number one, failing to get an assay of the fake gold bars to find out that they were fake. Number two, they did get assays of the chain on the spools, but they would unroll the chain like a few inches, cut off the last few inches of that particular chain on that spool, and send it to an assayist to, to confirm that it said 12% gold, it was 12%, or 12 carat, it was 12 carat. Um, and, and the last thing we said is that they didn't properly audit whether the receivables were legitimate or not. Um, I can't go into the result other than to say there was mediation and there, there was a settlement. Um, the last uh, thing that we did on the file is we, we be, as a bank, we felt we had a responsibility to the community. So we did go to the superintendent of uh, bankruptcy and we cl claimed that there had been bankruptcy offenses and there had been fraud. Um, I spent a long time and a lot of the, of the bank's money putting together a brief for the superintendent with all of the transcripts and all cross-references to all the admissions made in the transcripts and to the physical evidence. They gave that to the RCMP. The RCMP was very interested and started its own investigation. However, at the beginning of the investigation or in its midst, the principal of the debtor, who was the ringleader of all of this stuff going on, died. And uh, the RCMP said they were not going to chase the little fish with the big fish gone, and their uh, examination uh, ended. So in terms of recovery, um, except for whatever the deal was with the uh, accountants, there was uh, a no reco or nominal recovery from the inventory of the debtor company. We didn't chase the remaining executives. We knew what assets they had and it wasn't worth it. And although this is one of the rare cases where the RCMP was willing to get involved because I gave them their case with a red uh, bow on top of it, completely worked out, um, they unfortunately didn't end up chasing the case at the end. But the reason this stands out for me is I have never seen a cold, calculated, multi-party, multi-year fraud uh, as was in this case. Wow, that, that's a great story. And, and I bet you that remains the single best admission that you've ever gotten in an examination where you see the individual start to quiver and then spill all of the beans and let the cat out of the bag as to what really was going on. Yeah, you, you don't get those Perry Mason uh, <laughs> situations for those who know who Perry Mason is. And, and to tell you the truth, Dylan, it's not like I planned that to come out. That wasn't the, the object of my carefully crafted cross-examination. He just blurted it out. And then once, but then it's interesting, once you have that, of course, then you can work your way up the chain. And when I, when I examined the senior executives, 
I mean, there was nothing they could do with those admissions. They they were just too damning. Yeah, so it was a very good strategic move to start with the with the floor level employees and work your way up to the executives. Start with the guys who are the least sophisticated and who have the least invested in lying. There, there was nothing so bad for the floor guys to say what they did. I mean, they knew that what they were doing was wrong, but they didn't feel that uncomfortable saying that under oath. Uh, and by the time we had those admissions, we could nail the senior executives. Well, that that is a great story and, and some great practice tips. Thanks very much for, for sharing that with us, Aubrey. We appreciate it. Okay. Good luck to you, and thanks to the TMA for uh, inviting me to do this. Thank you. Bye-bye.